Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The race is on, and it's all change at the top of Mercedes, with James Allison moving into the role of Chief Technical Officer and Mike Elliott succeeding him as Technical Director. It may not sound like a big change, but it's a significant move for Mercedes with some big implications. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to explain why are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Well, Scott, hello. I'm obliged to ask, why why are you now living either in a, a much smaller flat or some kind of cupboard? Uh, I've taken inspiration from my favourite podcast, um, uh, Fake Doctor's Real Friends, the Scrubs rewatch show, in which uh, Donald Faison uh, records his episode from inside, inside, inside a cupboard, inside a wardrobe, um, better acoustics. So uh, I've decided to, I've decided that sounds really nice, and that is definitely the reason why I don't sound so good on podcasts. It's definitely where I'm recording from. So I, I figured I'd move into our makeshift tiny, where it's a glorified cupboard, um, and see if it improves. But the, no, the, the the reality is I actually. I'm having to record this podcast standing up because I have uh, I've hurt my back in some slightly confusing way, and I need to be completely upright. Uh, and I didn't want to disappoint anyone by not appearing on the podcast, so here I am. I'm hoping that that cupboard backdrop's going to appear in a F1 press conference scene because people have become very familiar with your front room from the the press conference videos that are put on YouTube and occasionally turn up on Sky and the like. It's not as uh, minimalist um, in in here. There's lots of clutter around in the background I'd, I'd hate for the background in my in my apartment to ever offend anybody so i need to make sure i'm careful with what's on display <laughs> always wise to be very very cautious and someone who's always got a very very sensible background and appears to be fully fit on first inspection is mark hughes how are you i'm okay yeah my back's fine <laughs> i seem to be functioning as, as well as someone of um, my age might reasonably expect yep come on Excellent. Well, you might have to carry the the lion's share of the work on this podcast. We'll see. Uh, we'll see how Scott's contribution is, but hopefully he can make it through to the end without too many cries of pain. So let's get on with it while Scott's still intact. So the big news, Mark, is that James Allison will step down as Mercedes technical director on July the first. Perhaps I should say step up, given he'll be taking on the role of chief technical officer with Mike Elliott taking his old role. Now, technical director and chief technical officer tend to be used interchangeably across F1 teams, usually with chief technical officer, a slightly more grandiose version. But this actually is is quite a significant shift, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the the labels can mean specific things in specific teams and and tend to. They're they're not exactly interchangeable. But um, this this move is uh, to do with a change of focus on the, on the future as we're coming up to two major regulation changes, one next year and one two or three years beyond that as we uh, go into the new engine formula, the new power unit formula. So um, this is James Allison sort of stepping back from the current role to look at a big overview um, for the demands of the the future. And if you think back to when... Uh, Mercedes was preparing for the hybrid formula, 
and they took on pretty much every technical director that had ever been. They had, um, as, as well as Ross Braun, who was a, an ex-technical director himself, and they had Aldo Costa and Bob Bell and, and Jeff Willis, and you know they had a whole host of big names. And that was so that they could continue development of a current car whilst working on a completely new formula. Um, but of course, with the uh, cost cap that you have now, you wouldn't be able to do that now. Um, you you would have to uh, you would have to make the savings elsewhere if you if you took on that number of big names. Um, so this is um, just a reallocation, I would guess, of uh, priorities and doing the day to day regular development of current cars is um, the, the former. Uh, he was called in in this team. He was called the uh, technology director, um, Mike Elliott. So he will now step up into the role of technical director, which uh, James previously filled. It's quite a sensible move to have this sort of structure in general, because it means that you've got James Allison looking, if you like, at the more macro level in terms of the wider strategic things technically, and then Mike Elliott's looking at more at the micro level, the the kind of day to day work of of making the car work and with an eye on, on next year's car as well. So it's probably a fairly sensible structure. But also, Scott, it's another example of Mercedes doing quite a good job of managing these transitions. I know we often talk up Mercedes and what they do, and it's it's quite easy to do things right when things are going so well. But this is a team that generally is quite good at handling this kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, obviously the um, the 2014 preparation that Mark outlined is the sort of big example of of preparing your organization in a way that maximizes it in longer term, not just in the short term, but it is this sort of transitional stuff as well that Mercedes has been really good at. If you think of how they, if you look at how they managed Allison's arrival and Paddy Lowe's exit, um, Aldo Costa's desire to to move away from from, from F1 the re, and there was a restructuring there. Um, and also on the engine side as well, if you look at Andy Cowell's departure from the from the engine part of the company, they've always been very good at, at just sort of preempting what these challenges are. So and, and reacting to them in the in the way that's that's most appropriate. So it's about basically an ability to be flexible enough to meet whatever new challenge is actually faced. And there was there's one element of this where you might argue, oh, this was a this is a great idea if they do it 12 months ago because if if James is only switching into his new role bigger focus bigger strategic stuff uh, on July 1st then that's obviously not a huge amount of lead time for the start of F1's next era but he won't be going into that first of all for a short-term quick fix it'll be about future-proofing the organization at a time when Mercedes and every other big team are adjusting to new cost cap restraints new aerodynamic and engine development restraints and at a time when probably competition is going to get harder than ever because all these other teams are going to be on a di- on the same financial level for the first time and this is going to be something that's in place for the long term so they're, they're going to constantly be learning things adapting their processes to suit finding ways to become efficient so having someone who's in charge of that on it with a broader overview is really important and the other and the other element of it is He's been technical director. So it's not as if Mercedes is bringing in someone who's cold to the organization, who needs to be bedded in, who wasn't part of the 2022 car's genesis. Allison would have been working on that 2022 car in the background. He'd have been steering different 
uh, avenues with that. He'd have been hands-on in some capacities. He'd have been delegating in other capacities. He would have been as involved in the 2022 car as any technical director on the grid. So it's not like it, it's not like there hasn't been any broader focus for him in the long term or or, or, or anything like that. He's probably had all the input into that all-new 2022 car that he feels he needs. And now with these strategic challenges, which are a big, big threat, he can focus now on that in a broader term, in, in broader terms, and then hand over the, as you described it, the day-to-day stuff to, to, to Mike Elliott. So I, I think it's, I think it's just another very good example of how Mercedes is able to just shift, just be able to do what it needs to do to adapt. It's it's the exception that proves the rule that all empires fall, isn't it? And a, this this has been a, a key element, a key strength in making that in making that the case. This ability to just not be undermined by individuals coming and going. Also, Allison is said to be working closely with Toto Wolf in this role, so he can deal with some of the things that perhaps Toto might otherwise have had to to take calls on, and that's important because obviously ever since. Uh, Nicky Lauder stepped down before his obviously his untimely uh, passing. Wolf had to take on more, and then the, the ownership nature of the teams changed. So he's got Mercedes, and he's got Jim Ratcliffe involved as well. They're, they're the the three different owners each have an equal share, so that should help Wolf in that regard. So it almost gives them a bit of a two pronged leadership in that regard. Well, what you've just said there, Ed, um, the, the 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 Lauder comparison is. It's, it's spot on because um, Toto referred to James in his new role as being a sparring partner. And that's how he always described Nicky, isn't it? it the, just that ability to bounce off each other and there wouldn't necessarily be always complete alignment on an initial position, but they'd once they'd sort of thrashed out their early differences anyway, they they would be able to be aligned for the, for the, for the best interests of the team longer term. I think it also shows the, the immense value that, that that Allison has and and how Mercedes recognizes that because at a time when costs are being scrutinized down to to the to the thousands of pounds of expenditure we know that there are these there are some exemptions on cost caps for the for the highest free earners within the team but creating an all new role that is secondary apparent it seems only to totos is not uh, is not a decision that would be taken lightly and i think it shows that i think it shows exactly what mercedes knew that they or know that they have in in, in james allison one individual never makes or breaks a team but he especially in that sort of axis of power with toto is so valuable that when once they knew that he wouldn't be carrying on as technical director beyond 2021 it's quite clear that they just looked at it and said right well how do we keep you then and I think Toto even describes it in the in the team's official announcement as, you know, they're, they're very pleased to have been able to shape, reshape the organisation and create a new role so that he can stay within within the Mercedes family. I mean, it, th- th- this isn't a this isn't just a case of um, pay the guy pay the guy more money. He carries on doing what he's doing. They've they've rejigged the structure to to keep him on board, which I I think goes a long way to to showing just how important James Allison is to, to that organisation. I think also James quoted as saying that um, reached the shelf life of his, his, of his role as, as tech director. And I think he, it's important that uh, he still stays 
motivated, uh, still has fresh challenges coming at him, because it would be quite easy for someone you know, with his sort of mental capacity, I guess, to to, to get stale um, if if the, the the challenge was the same year after year after year. So I think um, it's someone who will need the stimulus of new challenges, and um, this this will provide that. I'm sure as well, mentioning the cost gap, taking a more pragmatic and cynical view, moving somebody like that into a role where they've got a specific dual role, shall we say, because Bricksworth is mentioned as part of his remit, given what the cost cap covers, it perhaps also reshuffles things in a way that, that's that's more helpful in terms of where certain salaries are counted. I don't think that's been the primary purpose, but this has been quite a big thing in the background. Teams arguing about this, about certain personnel who who should be counted among the exempt personnel and those who aren't, how much of what they do is related to the F1 team, how much is related to exempt activities, etc. So it probably has some practical purposes. I'm just pleased that James Allison will still be around in Formula 1 because I think he's probably got the best turn of phrase of anyone in, in Formula 1. People who've watched the, the videos Mercedes put out will, will probably see that turn of phrase and maybe think it's scripted, but it's absolutely not. If you just walk up to James Allison and have a conversation with him, he'll use all these fantastic phrases and uh, and, and words that you just wouldn't expect. So he's, he's just always interesting to talk to, just from just purely from a linguistic perspective. Th- those Mercedes videos, I remember the first time he did one of those, and everyone was amazed at how good it was. And then I think, uh, I remember, I think he was speaking... I was speaking, speaking to someone in the team and they said he basically just rocked up morning of whenever they were doing the recording and just smashed it out in one take. <laughs> the no 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 pause. I, I bet he's an editor's dream because you basically just start recording, stop recording and there's no fiddling around in between. He'd be he'd be mega on this podcast. We wouldn't we it, it would it would drastically reduce the amount of fettling that's needed at the end of one of these episodes. <laughs> and I think that just reflects a very engaged and intelligent and distinctive character and and we should say actually James Allison himself he's had this success with with Mercedes so he joined in 2017 as technical director so he's been implicated or a key player in 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 four consecutive championship doubles but he's had he's had a great career obviously Ferrari didn't go quite as hope but I think we can all conclude that was perhaps more down to the way Ferrari was operating at that time than than any weaknesses on James Allison's front but he did a great job back in his Enstone days as well yeah there were some misfires like the uh the forward facing exhausts were done under his uh remit but didn't quite uh pay off in the end but I mean that's when I first dealt with him when he was he was in that role and, and he was always very honest about what was going on and for example with those forward facing exhausts he said well I thought it was great because we tried them for the first time great gain and we assumed there'd be further optimization but there just wasn't so it, it ended up being a good initial design that just didn't go anywhere so I've always found him interesting from from that perspective and Although the kind of technical giants of Formula One, they don't exist in the same way as they once did. You can't be Patrick Head or Colin Chapman or or whoever these days. But James Allison is very much, Mark, kind of the modern technical director great, isn't he, in terms of the way he does things? Yeah, he absolutely is. And um, I, I'm not sure there's going to be too many more of them um, of his calibre because he, he came in at probably just at the tail end when you still needed a, a pretty good overview of everything rather than being a, a specialist in, in one department. I mean, he was uh, fundamentally an aerodynamicist, but he still had a, a very good grasp and a very good um, working knowledge of the other uh, aspects of uh, what makes a quick racing car, and he continues to apply these uh, lessons. So, 
Yeah, totally. Where one of one of the giants, um, Adrian Newey, being the other one who's um, threatened to leave and said he was leaving, but is, is still around. So yeah, it's great that um, Formula One still has these guys. And obviously, the the long term thing that we've talked about with with Allison's role, this is the big challenge for Mercedes, isn't it, Scott? As you said, they sort of prove that every empire doesn't crumble eventually. It will do eventually. There will come a time when, when Mercedes isn't on top in Formula One. Just don't know how long it, how long it is. But they're doing everything they can to make sure they're in the right position through the next rule change, through the engine formula change. There'll be car rule changes again down the, the line to take the next step from next year's changes. So this is a team that that's definitely... It's not run its course in the way that sometimes teams do, and it's found ways to reshape and redefine itself so that those key players are still relevant and able to take on the new challenges. And in fact, they do keep talking about the new strategic challenges and the, the demands of being a Formula One team, a successful Formula One team going forward. Yeah, you start to make a quick racing car, but the constraints have changed an awful lot or are changing an awful lot. Yeah, well, just to go back to what um, what Mark said before about James Allison's comment that um, you know every there's a shelf life for every position. Um, he James also said that the team's going to benefit from someone new coming in as technical director because they'll bring a they'll bring a freshness to to to, to the role. And th- this is this is the thing I I completely agree with what the two of you have said about James's almost unique position within F1, especially in that sort of technical hierarchy. And I'm inclined to believe. Or side side with Mark that probably won't be too many like him in in the future. But that doesn't mean that that doesn't mean that in a day to day capacity or that, that he's irrepre- irreplaceable and that no one could li- live up to him. Elliot has got uh, big shoes to fill. He he used that that turn of phrase, but it's, it's brilliant for him because he has been in that organization now for i guess 9 years since he joined as their as Mercedes aero chief he worked at he worked with uh, James Allison before that they were reunited when James turned up in 2017 at that point um Mike Elliott had gone from i think the head of aero or whatever official title he was as i think the technology leader i think was is his official role so he's been working his way up that technical structure at Mercedes he's he's evolved his skill set as well and broadened what he has good command of and understanding of and over the last few years he's been he's almost been under Allison's wing uh seeing how he operates seeing the the strengths that he brings to the organization and seeing what improvements have been made and he'll have his own ideas about what things could could be improved and I guarantee he wouldn't be a in the position that he was already in and b wouldn't be being made technical director if he didn't fully believe in and live the culture that James Allison and Toto live live and breathe because that as we've talked about many times before is such a key key weapon in Mercedes bid to to stay on top so he's going to I would imagine they're very very confident that he will bring he will buy into all of the things that make the team good. He will be a key pillar in keeping the good stuff good. And as James Allison has alluded to, he just might have that sort of fresh perspective in a, in a different role that can then give the team other strengths as well. So I, he he wouldn't be picked. It's, an, it's another one of those internal promotions at Mercedes that makes a lot of sense, has very, very little disruption in terms of the transition and just helps elevate the 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 structure again. We 
the final point on that that I would make is that the biggest uh, the biggest sign of strength or validation of what Mercedes has done with its various evolutions over the years is that the 2020 car was arguably the best package that they've ever built. So even through this evolving six or seven year period where they put themselves on top, they were able to make changes. They were able to see certain people leave, certain people come into the team. And it wasn't just about all trying to maintain that level. I think they kept moving the bar. So this this is a tried and, and, and tested strategy of theirs to, 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 to have faith in the people that they've produced and are basically products of this, this environment and just go from strength to strength. So as much as we... As much as we would all love to see what a non-Mercedes, uh, non-Mercedes dominated F1 would look like, and we're starting to get a look at that in 2021, I don't see any reason for this to be the sort of thing that causes that house of cards to fall down. Well, it's the thing that Mercedes has always been good at, hasn't it? It's why it stayed on top for so long, and it's why it managed to stay on top through the rule changes for 2017, through the the relatively minor but significant front wing changes in 2019. Then, of course, you've got the changes this year that have held it back as we talked about on the uh, the episode last week talking about the low rate problem but still Mercedes popped up and won the first race of the season because the race team is very strong in terms of executing and they're very good at getting what they can out of the car so that that's that's really really interesting that they're putting things in place that could potentially put them in a in, in a good position but Mark Mike Elliott how much do you know about him obviously he's very well regarded he's been up to collect the constructors trophy for Mercedes in the past, we have seen him on an F1 podium taking the uh, the race victory trophy as well. So he's he's absolutely seen as an integral part of this success, even though he's not especially high profile. Yeah, that's right. He's one of the low profile guys, but he's very, very highly rated within the sport. And I remember how excited Ross Braun was to have um, nicked him from Enstone and um, from where he'd uh, presided over those really nice lotuses. And uh, he did... He's he's got a very very um, I'm going to say solid, but it, it, because he's so low profile, it, it's difficult to really get a a read on his um, personality. It, he's not someone that I've had many dealings with. He tends not to come to the races. So um, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, finding out more about him as, um, as as this new role has put him a bit more under the spotlight. Let's move on to the next topic, Scott. Looking a little bit further down the order, at the front of the midfield, we've got the two titans of Formula 1, McLaren and Ferrari. They've won 420 Grand Prix and 51 World Championships between them. The battle for third isn't quite what we're used to from from these teams, but do you see this as the rebirth of of a great rivalry? I know you've argued that in a a written piece on on the race's website. Uh, Yeah, I think it's the the start of it because I know... (laughs) When I was writing that piece, I was like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to find out the last time those two teams both were on the same podium because I bet it's 2012 when at the end of the year when when, when Button won in Brazil. Um, and then obviously about five seconds later, I remembered that because of the bizarre events of the Austrian Grand Prix last year, it was actually a year ago. <laughs> so that kind of put pay to what I thought might be an interesting stat, but the the point still stands that these two teams haven't really been rivals since 2012, have they? When they were secondary to to to, to, to Red Bull in, in in the end, but they they were at least sort of still in the mix for for, for wins and podiums. And last year they were ostensibly 
fighting for best of the rest, but they weren't really. Like Charles Leclerc's qualifying heroics was pretty much the only thing that would put Ferrari into McLaren territory, and the difference between them in points and positions in the constructors' championship proves that. So now, now we see them converging again because you've had this big slump from Ferrari that they're trying to trying to put right. At the same time as as McLaren is at the highest point yet in its own recovery from a much more sort of longer term decline since that started in 2013. So it's really interesting that they're now there together. I do think that McLaren's got the edge, and I suspect that they will probably have the edge, especially in races this season. But it was just really cool in Bahrain to see the cars fighting again, and when you've got those four drivers as well in Daniel Ricciardo, Lando Norris, Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz, you've got four drivers who are operating really, really well, have a lot more time still to 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 do stuff in, in Formula One, which sort of presents this op- this potential for this to be a longer term thing. And it's just it's just it's just cool because there is so much history there. And I was thinking this earlier, um, before we started recording, that if you sort of if you'd sort of stopped following F1 in the late 2000s or early 2010s and then you started again last year or or started again this season with the Bahrain Grand Prix you'd be baffled at where McLaren and Ferrari were like what why they're not fighting for wins because certainly in my experience as well my entire life a big 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 part of Formula 1 has been McLaren versus Ferrari certainly when I was younger it was McLaren versus Ferrari. That was the definitive rivalry. So it's just quite cool, even if it's not for wins, to, to have that back in F1 in some capacity. Well, you can go back a very long way for that rivalry, way back into the, to the 70s when there were, were title fights. I guess Hunt versus Lauda is the one that's that's most often uh, remembered. But these these rivalries have flared up. And that was, of course, McLaren in, it, in, its, in its previous guys, its sort of second guys, you, you could say, led by Teddy Mayer at that time. Bruce McLaren obviously having uh, uh, having died in, in 1970 and then Ron Dennis took over when the, the Project 4 merger happened. But th- these rivalries are, uh, are, are really important. But what people really want to see, Mark, is Ferrari and McLaren back at the front. Given the opportunity of 2022 and the new challenges that we talked about in our Mercedes section of adapting to new Formula 1, how do you weigh up where McLaren and Ferrari are in terms of that path back to recovery? Because they're at very similar levels competitiveness currently but slightly different positions off track aren't they i sense that there's still probably a a greater uh, capacity at ferrari it's a a big team that's shrinking down um so it but it becomes more of a question of how much of that potential can they extract you know you, you quite often see it with with cars as well, you know, one car, the a team's extracting sort of 98% out of a smaller number than a, a car that's got more potential, but the team can only access sort of 90% of it. Um, I think it might be a little bit like that in, in, in the sense that you'd say that as an organization, um, Ferrari would have more potential, but can they access, can the people that are there at the moment access that as effectively as McLaren can access its own um facilities and, and personnel. Uh, as you say, they're on a very similar competitive level at the minute. I'd say it was about the same at the moment. Um, the McLaren edge did it Bahrain. I'd have to be careful there because it's a very real limited track, so that may have favoured um, McLaren. We don't know. 
And we'll see, we get a better, because Imola is also quite real limited, we'll get a better idea how they're comparing this season and what, therefore, the trajectory is after maybe after Portima and Barcelona. But what what struck me is that given that they're on about the same lap time in Bahrain and the McLaren's got a Mercedes engine, which is definitely still better than a Ferrari, implies Ferrari has made good progress with their chassis. Um, but it's ultimately both both teams are still almost a second off the front. And then, I mean, that's, there's no disguising that. All right, it's a bit less now, but not, you know, it's still thick end of a second. Um, so you would hope that the 22 regulations do give a, a proper reset and we can make a better reading on them then. It's, it's interesting to look at what those two teams have been through because McLaren ultimately fell further, although Ferrari had a pretty good go at it last year. But McLaren has also had to have a more seismic change, should we say, than Ferrari has at any point. And there was obviously the rude awakening after they parted company with Honda. Switching to Renault engines was going to be the panacea, wasn't it? And then in 2018, they suddenly realised, oh, actually, while we had some trouble with Honda, there are some serious problems in, the, in this team. And that has led to a lot of a lot of positive changes. Obviously, Andreas Seidel coming in as team principal, some really good strategic moves, the investment in the wind tunnel, etc., trying to write their production facility. So McLaren's trying to kind of catch up for the lost ground over the the kind of last decade, really, if you want to look at it like that. Whereas Ferrari has, has had, as you said, Mark, pretty strong facilities, but not always made the the most of them. So that, that's quite interesting, two teams coming from different uh, different positions. But Scott, the whole thing about rivalries, how important do you think these rivalries are? Because Mercedes obviously hasn't had a proper team rival consistently. Ferrari was the closest to it, and that got pretty acrimonious at times. But because Mercedes always won <laughs> so in, the, in this era, it's almost not really a rivalry. It just becomes a bit David versus Goliath, doesn't it? And then it's just, well, Ferrari have underachieved, Red Bull have underachieved. How, how important is it, perhaps, to have a dynamic like that again at the front? And actually, are we starting to get that with Mercedes and Red Bull this year, potentially? I think it's everything. I think it's absolutely everything to Formula One because it seeps into every facet of of the championship um, and and the viewer experience you, and every perception of the championship itself, of the spectacle, of the teams involved, and of the drivers. When you have rivalries, people care more. Um, if you if you have proper rivalries that each individual race becomes worth watching for its own narrative, but there's also a wider season narrative um, as well. There becomes potential for, you know, animosity, as you said, that we saw glimpses of with Mercedes versus Ferrari. Um, it, it, okay. That can sometimes bring out the sort of more negative tribal aspect that comes with all sports fans, but You've only got to see sort of how big the team followings are on social media, for for example, to see how much people do care about these organisations. So when you see them start to really, you know, take lumps out of each other, that 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 becomes much more interesting. We then start to respect what the drivers are doing more. If Lewis Hamilton in a Mercedes had been constantly bettering the the best efforts of the the those the 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 red corner you know the rivals from Ferrari whether it was Sebastian Vettel or Kimi Raikkonen or Leclerc over the last half a dozen years people a, a larger number of people would respect Hamilton's triumphs a, a, as well so I think it's I think it's everything and just to go back to the reason we're talking about this McLaren versus Ferrari 
you pointed out that sort of lunt, uh, that that sort of 1976 fight, Louder versus Hunt. Um, that sort of emotive element is, I think, what I, that that can like light a fire in someone. You can go from being a sort of casual observer to being fully invested in something just because you've bought into this fight that you're seeing before you. Um, if you look at it from any, it, that goes for any different kind of sport, but just, you know, I'm a football fan, for example. And when I was, when I was younger, for no geographical reason or anything like that, but like it was Man United versus Arsenal was always like a huge one. And I, I was always quite lukewarm about watching these games, but I'd always want to watch that one as a neutral, you know, that that rivalry's fierce. So you want to watch it it just makes people care more. Um, and I think it raises everybody's game within the sport as well, whether it's football, F1, basketball, whatever it is. If you've got a rival, you work even harder to beat them. So I think it's absolutely integral to pretty much every element of what makes F1 good. What do you reckon, Mark? Is Ferrari v McLaren the the ultimate F1 team rivalry over, over a long period of time? I guess you can go all the way back to, I think, 74 would have been the first time they properly fought for the championship, those two teams, when... Uh, uh, Fittipaldi won the title from Regazzoni and arguably perhaps Tyrrell should have done it with uh, uh, with Jody Schechter and certainly if uh, Jackie Stewart had still been going or uh, or maybe Francois Soer still been around it might have been a different story but there's a great history and it, it, it got so acrimonious at times particularly in the more recent ones thinking the the first decade of the, the 21st century and the kind of late 90s as well so it's got a hell of a lot of history hasn't it and then you've got the whole thing of the the, the spy scandal uh, of, of 2007 as well so it, it's so storied it is and it's probably not a coincidence that they are the two oldest teams um you know ferrari gone right back to the start of the championship and mclaren joining in in 66 are, are you not counting are you not counting alfa romeo not not buying into the sauber rebrand no, no not not totally <laughs> um <laughs> So yeah, I think it's it, it, those two are, have a particularly strong following as, as teams. Um, but I think you know uh, Mercedes versus Red Bull is just as good, really. Um, I'd be just as happy watching those two sort of taking lumps out of each other as um, Merck and um, McLaren and Ferrari at the front. So it's it, as long as you have two fairly evenly matched teams with two very closely matched lead drivers, then it, it's perfect, isn't it? it it's the stage is set. And I think that's the, 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 the most we can hope for. And it looks like we've got it this year after a few years of not having it, of being a, a bit one-sided. And I think it's absolutely, um, you know, to the, to the benefit of the whole sport that um, someone's finally sort of stepped into that breach and, pulled back that uh, big, big lead that uh, Mercedes had had. So, yeah, it's, it's you sort of find yourself um, hoping that it's it's not just a false dawn and because it's been so long. But I think um, as, as we get two or three more races sort of as closely matched as Bahrain was and then we can say it's definitely game on, can't we? Yeah, that's the real hope because it's, it does have all the ingredients. It's got the great drivers it's got the, the teams with the quick cars. Perhaps Mercedes slightly the underdog based on performance so far. So you just just hope that 
that things stay that way through the season. It doesn't really matter who wins. All it matters is there's a there's a fantastic fight. But it, it's certainly something we're hoping for from F1 in 2022, not just with the technical regulation changes, but also with the various financial measures, the cost cap, the slightly more equitable distribution of the, the F1 revenue shared between the teams means that there should be more teams, at least that have the potential to be up there. Whether that will play out, who knows, but there is at least some hope that McLaren and Ferrari can get back up there. And then, of course, any of the others who can uh, could make that step as well. Uh, Scott, moving on, another piece of news over the past week was Nico Hülkenberg being officially confirmed as the Aston Martin reserve. Logical choice for the team, given what he did last year, very effective in his standing roles. Do you see a way back for him full-time, not just with Aston Martin, but anywhere? Uh, not, not really. Um, I, I think... I think Aston Martin now represents his best chance because then then I don't think they're they're ever going to they're never going to get rid of Lance Stroll but you know if Seb continues to massively struggle will he think twice will the team think twice and then Hulk's the the obvious choice there to 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 stand in not not just as a reserve but as a full-time replacement I don't think it's necessarily going to come to that and I'm not saying that that's why they've signed him either but I I think it's a I think it's a logical conclusion to draw. Should should the situation develop in a way that Seb leaves, then obviously Holt looks sort of best placed. Um, elsewhere, I don't really see. I don't really see how. I, I don't see. I don't see what options outside of the lower part of the midfield he'd have. So I don't know why he'd want to to return just for the sake of it. Um, I wouldn't eat, and it wouldn't really be in a team that would necessarily sort of put him back in the picture, unless unless he was able to get into Williams, and they really do make good on their aggressive plan to re- return to the front of the grid. Um, but for those teams involved, even a team like Williams that might become very upwardly mobile in the next few years, I don't see why you'd necessarily bank on Hulkenberg over someone else. I I would describe him as a a driver that you'd never argue to lose his seat in Formula One, but he also sort of slips through the crack because he's not necessarily one who I'd argue now he's out of F1 must come back at all costs, you know, or, or you know, any cost. Um, because it's a little, he's a, in, I guess he's in a little similar position to someone like Kevin Magnussen, for example, where you're like, oh, it's a shame we didn't see him do X in Formula One. But is he worth sacrificing a seat that should go to the Formula 2 champion or a Formula 2 runner-up or someone like that? I don't necessarily think he is. So, yeah, it's a, it, it's a difficult situation. Um, on merit, he'd have never left at the end of 2019, but that's what's happened. This is a position he finds himself in. And I, I do suspect this is sort of the best chance he's got unless something dramatic happens behind the scenes at Aston Martin. Yeah, it's sensible for that team to have a proper driver on standby, given the problems they had last year. We criticise them for not being a little bit more organised on that. So I think it, it's it's only right and proper that they've they've done this. And I wouldn't read too much into the... Already people are saying, oh, does that mean he's going to replace Vettel? You know, if, if if things continue to go like Bahrain for, for Vettel all season, then maybe something like that could happen. But I don't think that's the I don't think that's the primary objective of that by any means. I think it's just a genuine reserve role. But Mark, what do you make of Hulkenberg? He's, he's a frustrating driver, really, isn't he? Because he's never lived up to the promise that he had in the junior categories. And actually, if you look at his junior record, it's very, very similar to that of Lewis Hamilton, actually, in terms of winning championships. Very, very similar number of number of wins as well on, on the, the nursery slopes to, to F1. But it's never quite worked, has it? 
No, his best stuff. He look he looks absolutely a driver of that caliber, but he he doesn't he can't always deliver that best stuff on demand, and it has been a a regular failing. And if you if you had to sort of narrow it down to a trait, it would be that he doesn't maximize the tires. He he can't always get the best from the tires, especially in the the, the heat deg races where you have to. Um, come up with a very del- delicate balance between pace and um, tyre usage. And, yeah, I, when he was paired at uh, Force India alongside Perez, that, that really became crystal clear. He was a little bit quicker than Perez, um, probably over a, over a single lap, but over a sequence of them, he, he just he, he couldn't make a strategy work if it was at all um, demanding on, on, on the tyre front. And in, not in the same way that uh, Sergio could, anyway. And I think really that sort of defined his level. And had he come in at a different um, type of F one, had he come in with a during a tire war, he, maybe that trait would never have been revealed. Um, where where it, was, it was just performance tires. But this is the F one that it is, and um, you know you, you can't really say, well, it's a shame that the uh, the tires aren't better, or it's. Uh, a shame that the the cars aren't different for driver A's driving style compared to driver B's. It's just what it is, and it's down to uh, the driver to adapt himself and extract the most from the, the potential that's there. And you could you couldn't really say that Hulkenberg has done that over his career, although his uh, peaks have been uh, marvelously high, fantastically high, and but. Yeah, I I think um, where he is, the position he's in now is is just uh, sort of the the natural unfolding of that um, of those traits over a period of time. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I've always been pro Hulkenberg, having seen what he did in the junior categories and what he has done at his best in in Formula One. I remember being at the Norris Ring in F three when he won from seventeenth on the grid, something like that, and watching on TV when he dominated in the wet in A one GP in at Sepang. But yeah, it's it's never quite worked. It's, I think the point you make about the way the tyres are and the way Formula 1 is did work against him, but I completely agree. The best drivers adapt, don't they? And you can't say that it's unfair because the conditions of this, the best drivers have to adapt to the conditions. Only 25 drivers have started more Grand Prix than than Hulkenberg, so he's had plenty of opportunity to cement his place. I'd quite like to see him come back, just because I'd like to see if that, that that quality can come through. And maybe if the 2022 Pirellis are what are being asked for, which are much less temperature sensitive and more robust and drivers can push more, perhaps it could suit him. But at the same time, if he doesn't get back, I can't say it's a travesty because he's had every chance to to make his place and he, he's, had his, he's had his time. We're just moving on from Hulkenberg to the last one. We're heading to Imola for the, for the next race. Scott, Imola was a great addition to the calendar last year, wasn't it? So looking forward to seeing F1 getting a, a second bonus race there? Yeah, especially with... Um obviously how good the Red Bull looked there last year and th- there's no reason to, 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 to think it won't be even stronger this this time around. I think it'll go there with a pace advantage. I think Mercedes will have had more chance to work out uh, some of the sort of flaws in its car concept. Sort of Maybe they've been able to put less of a temporary fix. Maybe they'll be less affected because Bahrain's so rear sensitive. Um, and... I think it's just fascinating and it's just really cool to go to a a track like Imola. We've go, <laughs> we're going from 
a place that had this ridiculous track limit situation in Bahrain that created a needless controversy at the end of a brilliant race. There's not going to be any worry about that at Imola. I think if uh, Max is able to take the lead three laps from the end with an off-track move around the outside somewhere at Imola, let it stand. Don't care about that That's because that is going to be the move to end all moves if he's able to pull that off because I think the track limits at Imola are basically grass, gravel or barrier, aren't they? There's a few places where people are getting done for it last year, but there's other places where you're not going to get away with it at all. But Mark... What should we expect from F1's first foray away from Bahrain? There are some similarities in terms of the performance sensitivities, some differences as well. So how how big a challenge does it offer to teams in terms of us learning a little bit more about who's strong where? It is actually quite similar in terms of its um, rear sensitivity, in terms of the, the limitation on the, on the rear of the car. Um, and there are a couple of places as well where you're turning in and at the same time as your speed is decreasing, so you have uh, Ravazza 1, um, for example, that um, that's the type of corner that was catching Mercedes out in Bahrain. So we might see a sort of similar pattern there, but probably not to the same extent. Um, last year, the Mercedes relative to its average, um, actually went quite well at, it, at Imla. And the, um, the Bahrain, historically Bahrain has not been a great track. Even when Mercedes has had, had dominant seasons, its margin of superiority has usually been lower at Bahrain than its average over the season. So I think there is hope that um, for Mercedes that they can be closer than they were in Bahrain, um, not just from the fact that they've had time to work on a better balance of the car, but also I think just in terms of track characteristics, it um, it should should be a little bit better from them. But um, I still don't think it's the ideal track for the type of car we saw in Bahrain. And I think um, looking ahead to the following two races after Emile, um we should have a better idea it, it should, because they should... Um, punish the Mercedes less, I think. And Mark, obviously one driver who's got bad memories of Imola is George Russell, who crashed under the safety car there last year while on, on course for, for points for, for Williams. They've talked up the fact that Imola should be better suited to the car. They're hoping for less windy conditions, thanks to it being quite nice and sheltered there, which is certainly the case. Do you think there's any chance of him finally getting his first Williams points there, or do you think that's asking a bit too much? Oh, no, I think it's feasible. I don't think the... Um, I don't think Williams are just going to be hanging on this year for maybe a little sniff of you know, a race of attrition. I think they can get lower end points, or George can um, realistically think about lower end points if he can get the thing into Q2. Um, and yeah, as you say, Emily should be a bit more favourable than Bahrain. Um, it's a very, as they're saying, it's a very wind sensitive car, and then Bahrain was a very, very gusty weekend so yeah uh, i would i would say his, his chances are are okay but he's not he's not a favorite to get lower end points but yeah i think it's um i think it's feasible that they should be that should be their target going into the weekend yeah they need some assistance realistically because the williams is categorically not one of the five fastest cars even in the most favorable possible conditions it's not even probably the 6th or 7th. So, well, it's definitely not the 6th or 7th. So, yeah, they need some help. But George Russell got into Q2 in Bahrain. So if he can repeat that at Imola and have a solid race 
I guess anything's possible. That's all we've got time for on this episode. Check out therace.com and don't forget the hyphen. Plenty to read there on Mercedes, Ferrari, Nico Hülkenberg, as well as all the coverage to come from the Emirates F1 weekend. If you haven't already, make sure you have a listen to our sister podcast, Bring Back V10s, which tells classic F1 stories from the 1989 to 2005 era. And also head to our YouTube channel for our latest videos. Thanks for listening. As always, we'll be back soon with everything you need to know from the San Marino, I mean Emilia Romagna, Grand Prix. <laughs>